All right, let's go Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to bookmark it, we'll also spend a brief amount of time in Romans 15. Uh, we'll look at one verse there, but um, Ephesians chapter 2, Romans 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online, we'll put the text up on your screen. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, we actually love giving Bibles away around here. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but the chief thing that He uses it for, the highest of all the good things that He uses it for, is to, give, uh, to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about your life to be defined by that relationship of knowing him and walking deeply with him. And if the Bible is what he's going to use to do that in your heart and life, then that sounds like a smart thing to do to be reading the Bible. And so if you don't have one, get one and I can give you one and we can fix that today. All right. So we are on the back end now of a short break from our First Corinthians series uh, that we've been walking through for the, uh, a little over a year now. Uh, and as a part of that break, uh, we took a couple of months uh, to, to kind of to slow down and begin to, to ask some serious questions of the things that we do in a normal church gathering, the things that we would do in a church service, if you want to call it that. And, and um, we're, just, we're just asking the question, why? Like, why do we do this thing? Or why do we do that thing? Or why do we do this thing in this specific way instead of that specific way? We're, we're kind of channeling our inner toddler for a little bit, and we're just asking the why question over and over again. All right? uh, we want to kind of pick it apart a little bit and make some sense of them, some things. And, and, and regardless of however long ago that you, you had kids in your house and whatever stage of life you're in now, every parent is very, very familiar with the why stage. All right? um, it, it, it's this thing that we all go through. Uh, and so if you don't have kids yet, you will go through it soon. All right? uh, and sometimes the why stage hits you as an, a great annoyance. Right? It's the thousandth time that the question has been asked in the course of about 20 minutes, and you're just done. All right? You just you just phone it in after that moment. And so if you're like me, I'm sorry for the kids that have to grow up in my house because I get sarcastic in that moment. All right. And so I start answering very much the wrong way. All right. And so my kids are going to have to Google some things later and work some stuff out in their adult years. All right. Just, just saying, they've got some ideas about the world that may not be factually true. All right. So Sometimes the why question hits you as a giant annoyance, but then there's other times, other times that the why question kind of lights you up, right? And it causes you to slow down and actually think through the reasoning behind something. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes committing that extra thought actually affects the way you see something and causes you to take a step back from that something uh, because now that thing doesn't make any sense anymore and so you need to separate yourself from it. That, I've got those moments in my life, maybe you do too. But my absolute favorite moments in life, or at least some of my absolute favorite moments in life, are when you begin to apply the why question to something, and it ends up affirming what you've been doing all along. I love those moments. And it's not because you were smarter than the average bear. It's not because you figured things out when other things, when you know, everybody else didn't figure out. What likely happened in that moment was that somebody who came before you actually did put a great amount of thought into that thing, and they handed it down to you, entrusted that thing to you. And even though you were too dumb to realize it then, God kind of protected you from messing it up. And I think, I've got the opinion that that there are a whole bunch of things in the life and the rhythms of a church that fall into that latter category. Things maybe we've done for years and years and years, maybe even our entire lives, because it was the rhythms that were handed down to us without ever really thinking through them. 
that if we would just stop for a second and pay some careful attention, we will realize that we were entrusted with something good, handed something that had been thought through and had now been passed down to us. We'd end up affirming those things as good things that have been gifts. Now, if you remember, though, we gave ourselves some guardrails for our journey. We, we didn't want to just start deconstructing things. Deconstruction, just for the sake of deconstruction, is a terrible idea. It always leaves people homeless. All right? All right? But uh, we, we wanted to, to give ourselves some guardrails, some measuring sticks, to, to, to kind of help us make some sense of these things and, and to, the, to make sure that we actually landed this, this effort in a, a healthy place that, that left us without being homeless. And so the first measuring stick that we gave ourselves it was that our reasons for doing something need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. I'll say that again because I think it's a haymaker of a sentence. The first measuring stick is that our reasons for doing something is that they need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism, rather than what just works. In other words, we don't simply do something because we think that that something will produce a certain kind of result for a little while. We want to ground our reasoning for doing something in what the Bible tells us will still be valuable 10,000 years from now rather than just 10 months from now. We're playing the longer game here. Now, fads and styles are neither wrong nor sinful, but by definition, they are also temporary, right? They eventually go away. They're fleeting. And fleeting things make terrible anchors. They can't help you. And so if we define our success here by how closely we tie ourselves to whatever might be productive in a given moment, in a given season, we will always be forced to try and keep up with the styles and fads as they shift. I don't know if I have to tell you this. Maybe you've lived life long enough to know the answer already. But that sounds like an exhausting way to live. Right? You can't keep up. Eventually, it will bury you. You may be able to keep up with it longer the younger you are and the more resources you have to throw at it, but it will eventually overwhelm you. And churches are no different. Churches are no different than that. We can chase after this thing and after that thing, but if we're always spending ourselves for the chase, then we're eventually going to get flapped, and it won't go well. If, however, we define success here as chasing after what God has already told us, in his word that he would bless? I mean, that seems like a much more restful reality, right? It means that we can actually trust that he will provide everything we need in order to pursue him. It's the opposite of exhaustion. It's rest. That was the first measuring stick we gave ourselves. The second one is this. The priorities of our gathering need to be focused on what builds up the body rather than what expands the body. What builds up the body rather than what expands the body. In other words, what we do here is intended first and foremost to strengthen the church family we have over and above trying to sell ourselves into some kind of make-believe sensitive seeker. Right? We don't have to create an impressive experience that, you know, with you know, the hopes that, that we'll draw a crowd and that crowd will be really impressed with the gospel that we want to try to tell them about next. That's not the aim we have here. According to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, our aim instead is to equip and then send all of God's people out from here to be a disciple-making force in all the places that God decides to put us. Our hope is to equip you and embolden you to be disciple-making disciples 
that changes the world. And that means that we spend, you know, try to spend our time and our attention and our resources on things that train rather than things that merely impress. Right? It doesn't mean that, that fun things are out of bounds. I mean, we got excited this morning about some stickers on some coffee cups, right? That, that doesn't really train. And so the fun thing isn't out of bounds, but posture, no matter what we're talking about in this world, posture will always affect what seems reasonable and appropriate in those moments, right? So our posture to, to aim for training rather than for impressive is always going to affect what we do and how we do it. So we got our two measuring sticks. We've applied our why questions over the last several weeks to a course of topics. We've, we've looked at why we gather. We've looked at why we sing. Last week we tried to make some sense out of why we give an offering whenever we gather together. And so I've got an eighth thing for us this morning. I want to dig into why we show hospitality. Why we show hospitality. And I know for some of y'all, that may be a confusing idea for you, right? For one, many of you hear the word hospitality and immediately you think dinner party. Am I wrong? Like, there are some people in this world that get really excited about those moments. You got special napkins and special dishes that only come out when people are over, right? And you've got this recipe that you've had pinned on Pinterest for like two years and you're ready to finally use it, right? There are some people who get really, really excited about the dinner party. But then there are other people in this world, of which I am one of them, that the idea of a dinner party sounds like a nightmare. You picture in your head food burning on the oven or on the stove as you're trying to keep all the other plates spinning, right? How many of that how many of y'all that's you? Yeah. You don't think of yourselves as a good host or hostess. It's a skill set you're sure that you don't have. And you would just prefer not to have to deal with that kind of pressure. Thank you very much. But whether you like being the host or you're terrified by the idea of being a host, at the end of the day, a dinner party is a completely insufficient picture for hospitality. It's not a good enough picture at all. See, what you're thinking of is actually called entertaining. And they are not the same thing. They're not even close to the same thing. When it comes to the actions involved, the, the Venn diagram, if you're nerdy like me and you want to make one of those, all right, the Venn diagram of the actions involved in entertaining and hospitality, there's a lot of actions that overlap, but the, the posture and the intent behind those two things are not in the same galaxy. They're not... The same at all. Which leads to the second confusion that some people have with the idea of churches and hospitality. Like we, we just made a pretty big point that one of our aims here, one of our great measuring sticks is that we seek to expand the body rather than and to build up the body rather than to, to grow the body numerically, expand the body, right? That we that we want to aim for things that build up and train rather than just trying to impress the visitor that walks in the door. And if you're really thinking of entertaining whenever the word hospitality gets thrown around, that's going to sound incredibly dissonant to you, doesn't it? Like, maybe as we've walked through this series and I've kept bringing that measuring stick back up, you're like, well, that doesn't sound good and right. Churches should absolutely uh, try to uh, be hospitable. Of course we should. 
But what if they're not what normally gets thought of when we think of hospitality? And so I guess a massive question to answer is, what exactly is the key difference between hospitality and entertaining? Believe it or not, this might come as a shock to you. Didn't to me, but might come as a shock to you. I think we ultimately answered that question by chasing down a deeper understanding of the gospel. Right? And so put a pin in hospitality for a second. We'll come back to it. Join me in Ephesians. I think, I think if we understand the gospel, or at least the gospel from this angle, uh, it will forever affect the way we look at hospitality, both at home and in this building. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 here. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so let's call a time out there. So you, you may not have picked up all the pieces there, but what Paul has just spelled out is the deepest possible spiritual hole that someone can ever find themselves in. Full stop. There are layers upon layers of uh-oh here. Layers of it. He starts out with an absolute haymaker of a sentence. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So follow me here. Paul makes the argument that all people everywhere by default are in a lot of trouble because all people everywhere by default are separated from God because of their sin. Everyone. You, me, the neighbor you don't know their name. Everyone. All of us. But not just separated, hopelessly separated. This isn't just some cute poetic picture Paul's point here is that dead men are powerless to fix their own problem. They can't do anything about it. There are no lifeless bodies at the bottom of the ocean deciding one day, you know, I think I'll just change the way I do things, drag myself up on shore, give myself some CPR real fast, and forever affect the way I live. That's not the picture he paints for us. Sinners are not merely in danger. They're not simply walking a path that could potentially one day lead to them being separated from God. He says, no, that, that our default reality is that we are all spiritually dead men. We cannot fix the problem ourselves. But, but we're, not, we're not some kind of innocent victim, though. We're not... <laughs> unfortunate collateral damage in someone else's war. He says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. What's a trespass? It's a willing and defiant step over a known line. I come from a part of the country where there's no trespassing signs all over people's um, property to keep people from hunting on, on their property. Like We know what a trespass is. It's a known step across a known line. In other words, you knew exactly what was out of bounds for you and you crossed over the fence anyways. But Paul follows that up by saying we're also guilty of sin. For a lot of people, that, that's going to sound really redundant, right? Like, because like, you, you've got this idea in your head that sin is just this list of don't do these things and you did that thing and so that's sin, right? But... But the Bible's definition of sin includes way more than just the don't do this list of things. 
In fact, it's much more broad than that. It's, it's not less than that, but it's just way more than that. Sin is also a failure to do the good thing. There's a whole lot of do's in there as well, and we're not so good at doing them. God has commanded something of you and is an extension of your own indwelling selfishness. You just said, nah, I'm not feeling it. I don't care. But there's also a third category for sin in the Bible, and I think that's what Paul has in view here. Sin is also described sometimes as a posture that's set against God. Whether, whether you happen to, to do the right thing or you happen to do the wrong thing is completely irrelevant to the fact that every bit of that action or inaction flowed from a heart that rejected God as Lord and King over you. That's what he's talking about. See, the Bible completely obliterates the idea that anyone, and I mean anyone, would ever stand before a holy God as innocent. They don't exist. It's a ludicrous idea, but Paul actually keeps digging the hole deeper in verse 2. What did it say? It says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the Bible refuses to let us off the hook for the responsibility of our sin, but it does seem to open the door for saying that we're not the only ones to blame. Right? And so we're guilty and, and, and we're on the hook for that guilt, but we're also not the only ones who are guilty. Not only do we blindly follow the course of this world, he tells us, soaking up the, the culture of sin and a culture of rebellion against God, but Paul also says that we've been deceived. Well, by who? By the prince of the power of the air, he says. Fun little nickname for Satan. We've been lied to. It seems that we're still being lied to. So there are other guilty parties here, for sure. But without missing a beat in verse 3, Paul goes right back to personal responsibility. Look at that. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, Paul makes the argument here that because of this posture of sin in our hearts, because of this uh, posture of rebellion against God, that, that our hearts are by default spiritually dead and separated from him. Paul says that we take that deception and we lovingly embrace it because it tells us exactly what we already wanted to hear. Yeah, we've been lied to. Yeah, we're still being lied to. There's also sometimes where we conveniently love that lie. Because we want to be in rebellion against God. And so by nature, Paul says, we are destined for wrath. Sounds like a really cute kid's Sunday school class, right? By default, we are opposed at the very core of who we are to the righteous authority of God. And by default, we willingly transgress his commands. And by default, we lovingly embrace the convenient lie offered to us that will always end up exalting ourselves. And so the short of it, as quickly as we can fold this up and put a bow on it, is that we deserve exactly what is owed for that kind of rebellion. I mean, the Bible calls it the wrath of God. The spiritual hole could not be dug any deeper. 
And if the story stopped there, then God would be rightly glorified for carrying out his perfect justice on those who deserved his wrath, carrying out his perfect justice upon sinners. We would be in trouble, and we would deserve that trouble. But by the grace of God, man, the story doesn't stop there, right? The story doesn't stop there. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Even just the first two words, but God, right? Those, those two words, that's all we need to bring good news, right? In light of what they're coming after, in light of, of, of who we are and what we actually deserve, those two words are incredibly important words for us. And so we know what is owed, uh, uh, but God is about to do something else. And whatever that something else is, is a wonderful change from what is actually deserved. It's got to be some of the best news ever. And so let's keep reading verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so... It does not matter whatever angle we want to try to approach this from and look at this from. Every possible thing that we could ever point to about our default state, about our default posture before a holy God, is that we stand before his righteous and holy judgment, that we are children of wrath. And yet, oh, and yet, for those who belong to Jesus, the Bible tells us, what do we receive from him? We receive kindness. The unimaginable blessing of his presence. We deserve wrath, but we get relationship with him. Not because we've figured out a way to, to clean ourselves up and, and claw our way back into his good graces. Not because we've suddenly changed the, the posture of our hearts and now we love him where we used to despise him and rebel against him. Oh, no, 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 no. We are shown kindness. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy because he loves us with a great love. Because even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive in Christ. Hear me clearly this morning, church. If you know Jesus, it is not because you finally figured out how to get on God's good side. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's an extravagant gift. God is the initiator that lovingly invites and welcomes in the one who has absolutely no business being in his presence. Despite the fact that we owed his, his arm, an arm's length away, despite the fact that we should never draw near to that which is holy and lovely and beautiful and good, he says, come on in, I want you here. He is the good initiator that lovingly invites and welcomes in the one who has absolutely no business knowing him. He's the one that sent his son to the cross to make payment for your sin. And he's the one that sent his spirit to dwell in you and to breathe life into your new heart. And he's the one that with zero merit or posturing from you forever reconciled you to himself. 
said, I want you here and I want you close. Come experience all that I have for you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, that's precisely the invitation he's offering you today. It's precisely the invitation that he's offering you today. The gospel is not clean yourself up so you can finally be pleasing to an infinitely holy and righteous God. Paul has stamped that idea into the ground this morning. The gospel is that Jesus came to soak up all of the wrath that is rightly owed to you for your sin and to provide a place for you to live with him forever in a reconciled relationship with the infinitely holy and righteous God. He wants you to know him. And he has done what is necessary to remove all the barriers from you knowing him. He says, come on in, I'm good. And if you've never trusted in Jesus' finished work on your behalf, today's a really good day to fix that. It's a really good day to fix that. We've got a lot more to talk about here in a little bit, but uh, when we come to our time response later, maybe you ought to do something about that. But listen, why wait? Do it now. Now's as good a time as any. Give yourself to Jesus. Call him now. You want to talk to somebody after we're done? I'll be down front. I'm game. But for those of us, those of us who already are followers of Jesus, there's a really big, obvious question that emerges for us this morning. Namely, what does any of this have to do with our understanding of hospitality in the church? Right? I mean, it seems like we kind of left that topic behind. Not even close. Flip over to Romans 15. It'll be to your left. Romans chapter 15. I seriously just want to look at one single verse from here. Romans chapter 15. We're going to be in verse 7. Now that we better understand the initiating work of God in the gospel, now that we see with clearer eyes that God's great love is extended to those who deserve it the absolute least, Paul is going to enjoin God's people to do something incredibly important here. Romans 15, verse 7, it says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Period. I mean, do I need to expound on that more? I mean, there are several places in the New Testament that carry this exact same, do what Jesus first did for you kind of tone. It's all over the place. Uh, in 1 John 4, 19, we're told that we love because he first loved. In, in both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, we're told that, that we are to forgive as we have already been forgiven. In, in James 1, he paints the picture that, 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 that giving from us flows out of what God has already freely given to us, right? And so Paul here in chapter 15 tells the Roman church that they are to welcome others as they have already been welcomed by Jesus for the glory of God. That, that word welcoming, it has nothing to do with entertaining, has nothing at all to do with making sure you got the best recipe off of Pinterest. It's definitely not about pulling out the fine china. It's about bringing someone in close. Drawing them into your presence. Drawing them into rest. Drawing them into provision that they could never reciprocate. 
This is what biblical hospitality is. It's a welcoming. Not, not because the one you're welcoming needs to be impressed with you. Not because you've got to try to sell yourself or some version of yourself. Show them a good time, right? Because you've already been on the receiving end of a spectacular welcoming. You've experienced a welcoming that so far outpaces anything you could ever show to anyone else. Paul's point here is that we show hospitality precisely because it is a natural outflow of a heart that has already received hospitality from Jesus. Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. Despite what is owed to us, despite the fact that we bring absolutely nothing to his table, we have been welcomed into the family and provided for because of the merciful and initiating love of Christ. Hospitality is not merely an action. It is a posture that fleshes itself out in a thousand different actions. It's a posture that has no problem flinging open the cupboard and setting everything it has on the table because you deeply understand how much you have already been given. Which means the reverse of this logic is also true. A failure to be hospitable is a pretty clear indicator that you don't understand the gospel well. It's a pretty clear indicator that you're getting some things disconnected and some wires crossed in your gospel understanding. And this is why, this is specifically why in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul includes hospitality in the list of qualifications for an elder. It's why it's important for church leaders to practice hospitality. Elders can be disqualified by a failure to be hospitable. Why? Because they misunderstand the gospel. You shouldn't be in church leadership if you can't get the gospel right. The gospel is incorrectly illustrated in their failure of leadership, both publicly and privately. They get it wrong in both parts. Hospitality is not simply a good character trait for some people to have. Gospel clarity depends on this issue. It's non-negotiable for church leaders. That brings us back to our two disconnects that we talked about earlier, right? Many, many people confuse hospitality and, and entertaining. And, and, and so while there's clearly some overlap in the actions, they're not the same thing. Entertaining? Like, like, think about it for a second. That's, that's ultimately about you. You're desperately chasing after somebody to be impressed with you. You're desperately chasing after their approval and their applause. It's an attempt to look impressive and put together. Now, God is clearly, clearly wired some people to be pretty naturally good at looking impressive and put together. Like It's not sinful for, for somebody to, have to, to use the personality and skill set that God has seen fit to give them to put on a great dinner party. That's not wrong. Get after it. Even better if you invite me over to your dinner party. But at the same time, at the same time, if, if God has made you really good at entertaining your heart might be at greater risk, greater danger of chasing after praise from the wrong place. 
It's a problem. You've got to watch out for that. Put barriers in place to protect you from that. No matter what spiritual gift we want to talk about, there is always a line that can be crossed into using that gift to serve and exalt ourselves rather than to serve and exalt Jesus. It happens so easily. In fact, the better you are at it, the quicker that line is often crossed. Hospitality, as opposed to entertaining, has nothing to do with personality and aptitude. It has nothing to do with gifting or skill set. It's a posture that ought to flow out of every believer who rightly understands the gospel. It's a posture that initiates love and joyfully welcomes in the one who has nothing that they can offer back to you. Do nothing to earn it. And likely will never return the effort. So, so how does this play out in our weekly gathering, right? Well, if Jesus' people are naturally a hospitable people, then it ought to be amplified whenever we get a bunch of Jesus people in the same room, right? Hospitality overload. We're never looking to impress the stranger here. We're never trying to sell ourselves. But when an outsider walks in the door here, guys, they really, truly need to be met with an otherworldly welcome. Something that's important here in order to illustrate the gospel well. An otherworldly welcome that deeply understands what it was like to be on the outside looking in. With no strings attached, empties itself for their good. We, we want to welcome others well because Jesus first welcomed us well. It's important to us here. So little things that make this place easy to walk into, that make people feel welcomed, we can and we should say yes to those things. Never at a, a layer that, or a level that, that changes our purpose here of what we're doing, but in a way that helps us illustrate the gospel, right? Illustrate the, the unearned, extravagant love of the one who first welcomed us. Hospitality is important to us for that reason. We, we show hospitality because we want to faithfully illustrate the gospel. So what, so what do we do with this, right? Like how, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean a little closer into what God has revealed about himself in the text. But I think we also have the opportunity this morning to maybe give a critical eye to how hospitable we are or maybe aren't. Right? I think, we, I think we start poking around a little bit, trying to make sure that this is a welcoming place. And for those of you who come to this a little more naturally, we could probably use some advice, right? So point out some things for us. I don't know about your heart, but it's really easy for my heart to fall into the rut of believing that everybody else in the room is as much of an insider as I am. Am I the only one that's ever guilty of that? But listen, if, if our hospitality as a group is just an amplification of our own personal attempts at this, then that means, I mean, follow me here, that means that we ultimately get better at the group effort by working on the personal effort. This needs to be practiced in our homes. Nobody is asking you to throw this year's best dinner party. 
Good luck. But do you throw open the cupboards very often? Do you invite in the one who has nothing to offer back to you and lay it all out on the table and say, whatever's mine is yours, have it. I've been given far more than you could ever take from me. Growing in these things doesn't merely make us more well-rounded Christians. It helps us show off Jesus. And it's maybe worthy of the work that it involves. So let's get after it. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. It's a time set aside for us to begin putting action to what God is stirring in our hearts. If you want somebody to talk to about it, I'll be down front here. I'll even put the mask on for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus, all right? The one who was lavishly welcoming to the least deserving. He makes himself known to sinners just like you. He provides for your greatest need. What was that need? Reconciliation with him. How does he do it? By dealing with your debt of sin. Jesus lived sinlessly. He died on the cross sacrificially in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now he calls on you as the one who conquered sin and death. He calls on you in this, morning, in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And yeah, that's a hard turn to make, but he does it with open arms. Come to him. He welcomes you. No, you can't clean yourself up, but he welcomes you. No, you can't earn his favor. He gave it anyways. He welcomes you. The Bible teaches that in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So maybe today is a really great day to take him up on that promise. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'd love to be helpful to you if you want somebody to talk to about it. But whoever you are and however God's calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for... Ephesians 2 and Romans 15. Thank you for being a God who is extravagantly hospitable. Despite being the ones who had nothing to offer back to you. Despite being the ones who actually deserved nothing but wrath and judgment from you. You came near. You made yourself close. You provided for where we were short. And you welcomed us in. Even raise us up, seat us with you in the heavenly places. What a place to get to hang out forever. Never because we deserve, but because you are welcoming and good. <clears throat> Father, for those of us in here like me who maybe don't do so great at the hospitality thing, convict me of my false view of entertaining. Convict me of all the places where I want to retain and protect rather than throw open the door and throw open the cupboard. Help me get better at this. Not so that people will be impressed with 
the dinner party, but so that people will be impressed with the God who gives all things first. Father, for those in here who, who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.